Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we know that this is your world, that you are its creator, you are its loving sustainer, that there is hope for this world only in you and your plans. We praise you for what you have already done in the Lord Jesus and what you have promised to do through him for all your world. As we turn our minds, Father, to understand that better tonight, we pray that you might fill us with your wisdom, that we might be able to perceive things as you see them, that we might be able to latch on to the solutions that you provide, that we might align ourselves with your great, beautiful, wonderful purposes. And we pray it in Jesus' name and the power of his spirit for your glory and for the salvation of your world. Amen. I don't know what you did over the uh, recent holidays. I was going to start by telling you a story about my holidays that now seems entirely ridiculous. So I'm just going to skip it. So this this morning, what we tried to do this morning was to think about God's big plan. A plan that we need if we're to make sense of what we just saw. We tried to start in the middle and look at the resurrection of Jesus, that moment where God pulls back the curtain and shows us the future in the person of Jesus. And then we tried to pull back from that and see that actually the resurrection of Jesus is the middle of a very big and grand story that starts from creation and takes you all the way through to new creation. That's the big story. The question that I want you to think about tonight is this. How does God move his whole creation from creation through to new creation? How does God move the entirety of the universe from the beginning through to the end. What's the means by which he does that? I mean, when I went on holidays, the means by which I moved our family around was a mighty Tarago. We loaded it up with the kids, all five of them, and put five bikes on the back and we drove on holidays. But how would you move the entirety of the universe from creation through to new creation? So that's the question I want us to explore tonight. And I'll tell you why it's really important. If you want to understand what God is doing in the world today, you need to know the answer to that question. And what we find when we turn to the Christian Scriptures is there is actually a consistent pattern that repeats throughout history of how God moves from creation to new creation. And if you can perceive this pattern, if you can get this pattern in your head, it's going to really help you understand His Word here in the Bible, and it's also going to help you understand what God's doing today in the world. And it's all about the coming of God, when God comes to town. That's what it's all about. So if you've got your Bible there, it would be, um, sorry, your outline there, it'd be great to open it up. Um, I'm at part A, the pattern established, the arrival of God. Now, to get our heads around this particular concept of the coming of God, we actually have to go back to where the pattern is established. Now, where is this pattern established? It's established at a particular point in the Old Testament when the Lord, the one true living God, makes a promise to a particular bloke named Abraham. So if you look there on your sheet, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, I've got it there under the heading of promise. Let me read it out to you. The Lord said to Abram, 
Go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And this is the bit you should underline. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through that land to the side of Shechem at the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your offspring. Okay, God makes a promise to this bloke, Abram, he will become a great nation, he'll be blessed by God, he'll live in this particular place of God's choosing. But notice also that God's purpose in establishing this promise with Abram is bigger than Abram and his descendants. You saw it there at the end of verse 3. The point is that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through you. So by establishing this promise with Abraham, God is achieving his greater purpose of blessing the whole of his creation. And so when God keeps this promise to Abram, God will actually be furthering his purposes for all of his creation. It's a way of God moving from creation to new creation by making a promise and then coming to keep it. But what happened to that promise that God made to Abram? Well, maybe you know the story. It's there under the heading of problem. By the time you get to the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, hundreds of years have passed. Abram has had lots and lots of descendants, but instead of being in the land that God had promised, the Israelites, as Abram's descendants had become known, were now living as slaves in Egypt. And then we read this in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, there on your page. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labour and they cried out. And their cry for help ascended to God because of their difficult labour. So God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. There's a problem, they're slaves, and then God remembers his covenant, the promise he'd established with Abram. Had God forgotten it? Does God forget when he makes promises like you forget to pick up your girlfriend when you said you would? Is God like that? No, God's not like that. When it says God remembered his covenant, that's actually a way of saying God decided to act now on the covenant promise he established previously. It's a moment of action. He resolves to act now. And so you can see the Lord's response there on your page in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. God's response. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their oppressors, and I know about their sufferings. I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites. What does God do? God comes down to fulfil his covenant promise. That's the important bit to note. The living God comes down to take his people to the land he'd promised. God doesn't show up randomly. He comes to fulfil his promise. What happens when he comes to fulfil his promise? Well, let's, let's push down a bit more. Let's fill out this picture. What exactly will God do? This time I'm reading from Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 to 8. Then God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty, but I did not reveal my name Yahweh to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived in as foreigners. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will deliver you from the forced labour of the Egyptians and free you from slavery to them. 
I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am Yahweh your God who delivered you from the forced labour of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. Okay, so there's two really important things to note here about what happens when the Lord God comes to keep His promise. First is this, when the Lord comes, it means rescue for God's people. You can see that there in verse 6. The Lord says, I will deliver you, I will free you from slavery, I will redeem you. God's going to rescue His people from the forces that enslave them. But secondly, when the Lord comes, it's going to mean judgment for God's enemies. There at the end of verse 6, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. So altogether, that gives three important characteristics of the coming of God. God comes to fulfill His promise, which means rescue for His people and judgment for His enemies. That's the pattern that's established. So that sets up us for this basic pattern that's there at the top of page 15. Uh, Having made his promise, the Lord comes to fulfill his promise. Got to get through my holiday here. There we go. The Lord comes to establish, sorry, to fulfill his promise by rescuing his people, in this case Israel, and by judging his enemies, in this case Egypt. You might like to add Israel and Egypt there to your diagram. That's the pattern established. Now, this moment, when the Lord God came down to rescue his people and judge the enemies, this was a very, very big deal for God's people. In fact, that moment of the Exodus remains a massive deal for the Jewish people today. That was the defining moment for them. When the one true living God called the descendants of Abram to himself and he he formed them into a nation. That Exodus moment, if you like, was the moment of birth after a very long pregnancy. That's what the Exodus moment was. It was the moment the nation was formed as a nation. Uh, Except that this wasn't just like any old country sort of breaking away from some other foreign power and declaring independence. The Exodus was different because the one true living God came down and made it happen. This was a divine plan, the fulfilment of a divine purpose, the forming of this nation of Israel. And because it was such a big deal, you can understand how throughout Israel's history then, they kept on praising God for this amazing moment in their history, what God had done at the Exodus. And you can see that in lots of places in the Old Testament. I've got listed two there, you can look up later. Psalm 105 or Psalm 136, I'll leave you to look at them. You can see that this remained something they kept praising God for, how fantastic it was what He had done. But also, it became a basis for what I've called their present pleading to God to come again whenever they were in trouble. Now, this is really important. When things got bad in Egypt, what had they done? They'd called out to God and God had come and fulfilled His promise in rescue and judgment. So, in the future, when things went bad, what was their natural thing to do? Well, it was to call out to God again. Please, come again. They'd prayed that He'd come again so that he might set things right and fulfill his promises. Now, you can see this in lots of places in the Old Testament. Psalm 77 will be one, or Habakkuk 3. Now, I hope you brought your Bible here tonight. You should always bring your Bible. I want you to turn up Habakkuk 3. Not because it's a little sort of difficult test of who can find this particular chapter in the Bible, but you might struggle to find Habakkuk 3. So, you might need to use your table of contents if you don't know where it is. No shame in that. I'll give you a hint, it is right towards the end of the Old Testament. It's not a very big book. Now, while you're turning up, I'll set the scene for you. 
Habakkuk is writing hundreds of years after the Exodus. This chapter is Habakkuk's prayer that God would come and deliver God's people from the hands of the advancing Babylonian army. And I want you to notice the way he prays. So Habakkuk chapter 3, I hope you've found it by now. Let me read it out to you. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigilnath. Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. Do you notice what he's saying already? He's saying, I know what you've done in the past. Renew it in our own day. And then he goes on, he's going to recount what he's heard. What, what has he heard in the past about God's deeds? He's going to tell the story of the Exodus and then the journey from out of Egypt all the way into the Promised Land. So let me read on from verse 3. God comes from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendour covers the heavens. The earth is full of His praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from His hand. This is where His power is hidden. Plague goes before him, and pestilence follows his steps. He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Cushion in distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers or is your rage against the sea when you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot? You, look the sh- you, sorry, you took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and it lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence at the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear. You march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck. You pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the great waters. He's been recalling the events of the Exodus in this amazing sort of language we'll think about in a moment. But then having remembered what happened in the Exodus, Habakkuk applies it to his own scary situation because the Babylonian army are about to invade the city. Verse 16, I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines... Though the olive, of, olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will triumph in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. Now, you can see there from verse 16 that though he's scared silly by the prospect of the invading Babylonians, he's resolved to trust that God will once again come and deliver his people from their enemy, just like at the Exodus. God's coming to his people at the Exodus is the basis for his appeal in the present for rescue. Surely he will come and rescue his people and judge the enemies and thereby fulfill his promises. So there's the pattern established. The Lord makes a promise, and then he comes in rescue and judgment to fulfill that promise. 
Now, before we go on and see how that pattern then plays out through the Old Testament history, we need to just move to the side a bit, I guess, and make a little bit of comment on an important topic. Uh, On page 16, you can see the heading, Being Better Readers of God's Word, I want to talk about apocalyptic language. Now, did you notice as we read through Habakkuk 3, a lot of, you might call, extreme language. Verse 10, the mountains see you and shudder. Or verse 11, the sun and the moon stand still at the flash of your flying arrows. Well, what's with all this earth-trembling, flashing arrows stuff? How are we to understand that sort of description? Now, let me tell you, that is a really important question because when it comes to eschatology, so much debate amongst Christians is tied up with how to understand this sort of language in the Bible. Most of the debates, as I can make out over the book of Revelation, are tied up with exactly this question of how are you meant to understand the language. So you need to think through this issue carefully. So when Habakkuk says, God came from Teman and pestilence followed his steps... He stood and shook the earth. He's not speaking literally, is he? Or look at verse 12. In wrath you you strode through the earth and in anger you threshed the nations. Habakkuk is not saying that at the Exodus God literally appeared and strode around sort of with a massive sort of threshing fork. You know, the Egyptians, I'll thresh them and the Canaanites, I'll... It's not, it's not literal language, is it, right? He's speaking metaphorically, but he is communicating a truth. It's truth wrapped in a metaphor. What's the truth that he's communicating? I think it is. It's that the Lord was the one who defeated the Egyptian army. It was entirely his doing. You didn't actually see the Lord striding around the battlefield, but the victory was entirely his doing. Mind you, it's not just any old metaphor. It's a metaphor that uses this cosmic type language. The whole earth trembles. The heavens are torn apart. The sun and the moon, it's all cosmic type stuff, isn't it? It's a picture of the whole creation responding to God's arrival. It's telling you that what God was doing here is of immense significance and importance. It's like when you say an event is earth-shattering. It's not that we actually think there was an earthquake, nor do we even mean that it literally affects everybody on the planet. It's just that exalted type of phrase, using cosmic type of categories of heaven and earth and universe, to communicate how profound and significant the moment was. So if I say, when he asked her to marry him, the whole universe went silent. You know what I mean. You get the idea of that, right? It was a massive moment, at least for her. Probably for him too. But but (laughs) with massive implications. That's what this metaphoric, cosmic-type language communicates. So in the Bible, this cosmic language is used to express the full spiritual and theological significance of real historical events. You want to show that something that actually God did in actual history was massive in its effect, massive in its significance. You describe it with this cosmic type metaphor. It's truth wrapped in the metaphor. And the metaphor communicates the the spiritual and theological significance of this real-time historical event. So I'll give you an example there on your page, which is... At one level, you just, when you get it, you go, that's bizarre, like it's strange at one level. But then maybe not. Psalm, Psalm 18 it is, verses 6 to 17, it's there on page 16. Uh, if you look it up later in your Bible and you read the note at the beginning of the psalm, 
this is what it'll tell you. It says, this psalm, of David, the servant of the Lord, he sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So this psalm that I'm about to read to you is a psalm about David's personal rescue. He's been delivered from his personal enemies. But listen to how he describes it from verse 6. I called to the Lord in my distress, and I cried to my God for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the mountains trembled. They shook because he burned with anger. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Coals were set ablaze by it. He parted the heavens and came down a dark cloud beneath his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew, soaring on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, dark storm clouds, his canopy around him. From the radiance of his presence, his cloud swept onward with hail and blazing coals. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High projected his voice. He shot his arrows and scattered them. He hurled lightning bolts and routed them. The depths of the sea became visible. The foundations of the world were exposed at your rebuke, Lord. At the blast of the breath of your nostrils, you reached down from heaven and took hold of me. He pulled me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. Now that's some personal deliverance. David describes his physical deliverance in these cosmic type terms. Did the Lord literally blow his nostrils? He doesn't have a nose. Were the depths of the sea literally exposed? No, it's a metaphor in cosmic language. I know if you're an engineer you're struggling at this point, but just just try. It communicates this truth that it was the Lord who rescued him and gives you a sense of the irresistible power and purpose of God in it, and it tells you the significance of the event, because the Lord rescued his anointed one. He rescued his Messiah, his Christ, the person of David. Now, the reason this is also important is because when thinking about eschatology in the Bible, this sort of cosmic language often appears in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In, in passages of so-called sort of apocalyptic sections. So, for example, you'll see it in lots of the Old Testament prophets, Daniel, Joel, Isaiah. You'll see it in quite a few of the Psalms. It's there in the New Testament, not just in the book of Revelation, also in the descriptions of the end, often in the New Testament letters. And it's there in some of the apocalyptic bits in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13. If you're going to be a wise reader of God's Word, the Bible, then you need to be able to recognise this sort of cosmic language for what it is. Now, if you want to explore this more, here's a little hint. There's two seminars on tomorrow that you could go to. One is called Apocalypse Wow. Josh Lewis. Awesome, Howie, number one. Um, He's running a seminar on apocalyptic language from afternoon. That'd be worth going to. And then um, Alan Ow, awesome, Howie, number two. Um, He's running a seminar on the millennium, right? Revelation chapter 20, how do we understand the millennium? Uh, Is what about the rapture? And is Jesus going to come back and take people with him and then come back again? Or is it big debates amongst Christians over Revelation chapter 20? You want to explore that issue some more? go to Alan's seminar tomorrow, and apocalyptic language, trying to understand this sort of language is part of both of those, um, key to both of those seminars. Okay, so we've done a little bit on cosmic apocalyptic imagery, it's time to get back onto our theme, which is the coming of God through the Old Testament. I'm now on page 17. 
We've looked at the pattern established. We want to talk about the message of the prophets. Now, you would think that once God had come and rescued his people in the Exodus, that that would lead to a fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abram, right? God made a promise and then he came to rescue at the Exodus, but it didn't work out like that. From the very first moment, actually, the nation of Israel failed to keep up their side of the covenant agreement. So instead of worshipping the Lord alone who just rescued them out of Egypt, they wandered after other gods. Instead of living his way, they followed the practices of the pagan peoples around them. So you can see that there in the diagram. Instead of fulfilment, they met with failure. So what was their response to this? Even from just what we've looked at so far, God's people are not experiencing the fulfilment that they're expecting. They're experiencing failure. What would they do? Well, they cried out to God. God, this isn't as it should be. Come. Come again and fulfill your promises to us. That's what they're going to do because that's the pattern. Indeed, that's what they did. But God's answer to them is most unexpected. Open up your Bible again, this time to Amos chapter 5. It's a bit of a minor prophet's party tonight, you know. Amos chapter 5. Amos is just a little bit before Habakkuk, if you remember where he was. Amos chapter 5. Going to look from verse 18 of Amos chapter 5. Let's see what the Lord says to his people when they cry out to him Come again, Lord. Look at verse 18 of chapter 5 of Amos. Woe to you! who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness, not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom without any brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. House of Israel, was it sacrifices and grain offerings that you presented to me during the 40 years in the wilderness? But you have taken up Sakoth, your king, and Kaiwan, your star god, images you have made for yourselves. So I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. Yahweh, the God of hosts, is his name. He has spoken. So they're asking for another day of the Lord, like at the Exodus, but the Lord says, and you, I've sort of reproduced it there in the box on page 17, why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light for you. It's not going to be rescue. For you, it's going to be judgment. Why? Because of their idolatry. God is going to send them into exile there in verse 27. The coming of God, you see, is only a happy prospect if you are still on God's side. And you can tell whether or not you're on his side by whether you worship him or not. I mean, really worship. They were singing the songs. They were offering the sacrifices. They were having the festivals. But their hearts were far from God. And the same message is repeated throughout the prophets. So you don't have to look it up, but in Micah chapter 1, 
the Lord comes down out of his heavenly temple to trample on the capital cities of his own people because they've gone after other gods. The Lord comes, but in judgment on his own people for their rebellion and sin. So if you look then at the diagram at the bottom of the page, you can see that because of sin, the coming of the Lord is not working out as God's people expected. Whereas before Israel was rescued and Egypt was judged, what's happening now? Who's being judged? Israel's being judged. God's own people are facing the judgment. Who's being rescued? Well, frankly, at this point, it's not clear. We'll have to wait and see. So this is clearly a big problem for Old Testament Israel. But actually, as you read on through the Old Testament prophets, it's not just a problem for the nation of Israel, and that's because Israel's problem is actually everyone's problem. No one of their own accord chooses to worship God. We all take after Adam and Eve. We all define ourselves away from God by taking matters into our own hands, deciding that we'll do things as seem best in our own eyes instead of what He graciously has shown us. And so the coming of the Lord against sin is a problem actually for all of humanity, not just the Old Testament nation of Israel, because we all sin. And you can see this in the prophets. If you turn with me to our next little stop in this tour of the Old Testament prophets, Zephaniah 1. I know you've been spending much time in Zephaniah recently. Zephaniah chapter 1, which is straight after Habakkuk. I'm reading from verse 14 of Zephaniah 1. You can see here that What's on view here is not just judgment on Israel, but actually it expands out. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord. Then the warrior's cry is bitter. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. I will bring distress on mankind and they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Their silver and their gold will not be able to rescue them on the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants of the earth. Complete destruction of all of humanity because of sin. That's what the day of the Lord means. When God comes in rescue and judgment because of our refusal to worship Him and live His way, our refusal really to recognize Him as God, we're left as those facing judgment. So the picture at this point of the prophets is incredibly grim. Yes, the Lord will indeed come, but the day of the Lord will be darkness for all, not light. So in terms of the diagram on the bottom of your page... Those who will be judged, it's not just Israel, it's everyone, because all have sinned. And who will be rescued? No one. That's pretty bleak. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. Within the message of the Old Testament prophets, there is also a renewed promise. I'm now on to page 18. Part C, the renewed promise. Let me read sections of Joel chapter 2, which is there on your page. As I read it, see if you can pick out the glimpses of hope 
amidst the darkness of the coming day of the Lord. Joel chapter 2. Blow the horn in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the residents of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. In fact, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and dense overcast. Like the dawn spreading over the mountains, a great and strong people appears, such as never existed in ages past and never will again in all the generations to come. So, okay, so far, same old, same old, right? Same dark picture we've seen in all the other prophets about this coming day of the Lord. It's going to be a scary day of judgment. Verse 10. The earth quakes before them, the sky shakes, the sun and moon grow dark, the stars cease their shining. Right? There's that cosmic apocalyptic language we were talking about earlier. The Lord raises his voice in the presence of his army. His camp is very large. Those who carry out his command are powerful. Indeed, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure it? Well, that's a good question, actually. Who can endure this terrible day of the Lord? From what we've read up to this point, we'd assume the answer was no one. But then take note of what the living God says next. How beautiful and sweet this is. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping and mourning, Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. There's the get-out-of-jail opportunity. In the midst of his coming to judge, the Lord does hold out an opportunity even now for his grace, for undeserved favour. Not because anyone deserves it, it is purely as an expression of his own character. He is gracious, he is compassionate, he is slow to anger, rich in love, relenting from sending disaster. So there is a possibility of rescue after all. Verse 18, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and spared his people. The Lord answered his people, Look, I am about to send you grain and new wine and olive oil. You will be satiated with them. I will no longer make you a disgrace among the nations. I will drive the northerner, that was the invader, far from you. You will know that I am present in Israel, that I am Yahweh your God, and there is no other. My people will never again be put to shame. So here's the fulfillment of the promise. Here's the time of blessing in the land that he'd spoken all the way back to Abram. And then we get even more. It's not just prosperity in the land that God promises. He adds now something new, an extra aspect to this promise that up to now has been largely hidden. Verse 28. And after this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will have dreams, your young men will see visions. We're going to come back to that particular promise about the Spirit there on Wednesday night. And then I think these final three verses from verses 30 to 32 really are a summary of the whole chapter. He says, I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awe-inspiring day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved, for there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, as the Lord promised. Among the survivors, the Lord calls. So finally now the picture is becoming clearer. It's clearer. It's not that no one will be rescued. Even in the midst of this terrible day, When the Lord comes in judgment on sin, there is rescue for those who turn to him, who call on his name, independence and trust. The original promises made to Abram will be fulfilled. There will be life in the promised land for those who call on the name of the Lord, who make a heartfelt return to him. So I think you can add to your diagram there on page 18. Who's judged? 
those who reject the Lord. Who's rescued? Anyone who turns to the Lord in response to his gracious and loving invitation. Sounds a lot like the gospel, doesn't it? The Christian gospel. Have you been noticing that as we go through? Because God's message doesn't change. God's gospel is the same all through the Scriptures. Turn to me, trust in me, and you'll be saved. But actually, this is not the end of the Old Testament story. I'm now on page 19, part D. Fizzle, question mark, so it should be fizzle. So there were God's people in exile. God makes this promise, the day of the Lord will come. Anyone who turns to me will be saved. And indeed, God did keep his promise and a remnant of his people were preserved through the exile. They did return to the promised land and they did rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But here's the critical observation. It never quite matched up to the rhetoric of the promises. Uh, You can go away later and read Nehemiah chapter 9 or Ezra chapter 3 and you'll see that those who returned from the exile, they were clearly aware that they hadn't yet experienced all of God's promises being fulfilled. Yes, they were back in the land. Yes, the temple was there, but this is not what he promised. There's something more, surely. So on page 19, you can see how one writer, A.J. Herbert, put it. He said, The high expectations of the exilic prophets had not materialised in any degree that could be taken as a fulfilment of the promises made in Yahweh's name. Jeremiah the prophet had predicted a second exodus and several bands of courageous men had returned to Palestine but there had been no deliverance with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. A covenant had been made under Ezra, but it had not been the new covenant bringing forgiveness of sins. The temple had been restored, but there had been no glorious return of the presence of Yahweh. The law had been promulgated, but there had been no outpouring of the Spirit of Yahweh on all flesh. There had been rewards and encouragements, and those who sought the Lord had not sought him in vain, but the promised day of the Lord had not dawned. So despite this return from exile, the promises were still to be fulfilled. And then a very interesting thing happens. As you read through the prophets from this point, they continue to speak of a coming day of the Lord when all of God's promises will be fulfilled, even though they've returned from exile, they're still looking forward to this day, this great day of the Lord, when God would come and finally rescue and judge and fulfill. So let me just uh, describe to you some of the passages that I've listed there on your page. We don't have time to turn them up. Isaiah chapter 24, verses 21 to 23. You read that, we're told of a day when the Lord will judge all the kings of the earth and all the heavenly spiritual powers. And then God establishes himself as king in Jerusalem with great glory. Now that is certainly not what happened when the exiles got back to Jerusalem. That's a promise looking forward to a future day of the Lord. Or in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6 to 10, the Lord promises a day when from Jerusalem he will destroy death. He's going to reverse the curse that came on all the people back in the Garden of Eden. That's some rescue. Or in Isaiah 35, we're told that when the Lord comes, so great will be the salvation that the blind people will be able to see, the deaf will be able to hear, the lame will be able to leap like a deer, the wilderness will gush with water, and God's holy people will enter Jerusalem with everlasting joy and gladness. There'll be no more sighing or sorrow. 
Now just, just stop and think for a minute. In your extensive or limited knowledge of history, has ever such a moment taken place where God's people entered into Jerusalem with everlasting joy and gladness? I don't think there's ever been such a moment. Certainly not accompanied by the desert bursting into flower and the blind seeing. As I say there on your page, it's a promise whose fulfilment is hard to place in ordinary history. And that's even clearer then, I think, from the next passage there on your page, from Isaiah 65. There, the Lord says, he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth, which should ring some bells with some of you over what we saw in Revelation chapter 21 this morning. And in this new creation there, he says, there will be no more weeping, no more crying, death won't be the end to to life anymore, even the animals apparently are going to live in peace with each other. We're told in Isaiah 65, in verse 25, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. Now normally when a wolf and a lamb feed together, one's eating and one is being eaten. But here the wolf and lamb are going to eat together like buddies. He says the lion, the lion, rah, will eat straw like an ox. I don't even know if lions can do that in their digestive tract and system. I don't do zoology, someone probably does, but what's, what's that a picture about? Should I understand that literally? Like when I get to the new creation, I go up to the lion and go, hey, i got a pet lion, he eats straw. <laughs> Is that what that's about? It's truth wrapped in a metaphor. What's the truth? That the curse from Genesis 3, which has pitted, brought death into the world, that will be undone. That's how big the rescue is that God is planning on his day of the Lord to undo the curse. That's the sort of radical fulfillment that the prophets are looking forward to. Zechariah 14, listed on your page, is another prophecy that looks forward way beyond the exile to a coming day of the Lord. What's instructive here, when you read it later, is that it is full of Exodus imagery. This coming day of the Lord will be like the Exodus again, but bigger. The Lord is going to affect a new Exodus for his people. But interestingly, this time, instead of splitting the Red Sea so his people could escape the Egyptians. This time, according to Zechariah 14, when Jerusalem is surrounded by enemies, what God's going to do is he's going to split the Mount of Olives, which was a mountain just outside Jerusalem. He's going to split it so that his people can escape through the middle of it. In fact, what it actually says is the Lord is going to put his feet on either side of the mountain outside Jerusalem and he's going to push them apart splitting the mountain, and his people can run out the middle. Just like through the walls of the Red Sea, except this time through the walls of this valley. Moreover, Jerusalem, he says there, will become like a new Garden of Eden, with a river of living water running through it, which is picked up in the vision in Revelation we saw this morning. And the Lord is going to become king over the whole earth. He's going to establish Jerusalem so that it can be secure, and then he will judge the nations, he says, with terrible plagues, like at the Exodus. Worse, he says, than happened at the Exodus. In fact, I was going to read it out to you, but it's too gruesome to read. That's almost guaranteed to make you read it later. And then, he says, Jerusalem will become a world centre for worship of him. All the survivors of the nations, he says, will come and worship the Lord at Jerusalem and celebrate their rescue by the Lord. That's the great... And and we could go on and on and on, right? Daniel chapter 7, all the kingdoms of the world are handed over to God's people. Daniel chapter 12, even those who are already dead 
will be raised to receive everlasting life or to receive everlasting contempt. So the picture we get from all of this is there on the bottom of page 19. When the Lord finally comes, the fulfilment will be extraordinary. So much more than anything the Israelites had experienced up to that point. The day of the Lord's going to mean rescue and judgment on a scale Israel and the world had never yet seen. Even the dead would not escape. The fulfilment God would bring would be unprecedented, like a new Garden of Eden, with the curse overturned, even death destroyed. It would be like a new Mount Sinai, where Israel first gathered after the Exodus to worship the Lord, except that this time all the nations of the world will gather to join in the worship of the one true living God. So thoroughgoing would this fulfilment be that God describes it as a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. And that's the note on which the Old Testament finishes. It's full of this sort of expectation, full of hope that the Lord would fulfill his promise. He would come to his people in rescue and judgment and usher in this extraordinary fulfillment that will complete his purpose for his creation. Okay, well that brings us to the end of our survey of the coming of God in the Old Testament. How does all of this help? Well, I think it's all about frameworks and toolbox. Partly, this is all just trying to help you understand the Old Testament story. The Day of the Lord theme is an important way of telling the Old Testament story, of talking about God's interactions with this people and His purposes, indeed, for the whole of the creation. Because if you don't understand this theme, you are really going to struggle to understand not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. Because the New Testament is written within this eschatological framework. This expectation that the Lord will come and fulfil His promise in rescue and judgment in this extraordinary way. So getting your head around this topic is an important tool for understanding your Old Testament And even more importantly, it will help you understand who Jesus is. What Jesus said and what Jesus came to do. Because where this is all going is it is all heading to the historical person of Jesus. All this incredible expectation, all this incredible promise and hope for the day of the Lord, when God's going to come and do this extraordinary fulfillment of rescue and judgment... The New Testament says, Jesus of Nazareth is the answer to all of that. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for every one of God's promises is yes in Christ. That is such an amazing verse. Um, I'm teaching kids' church at our church for the next six months. I had first Sunday was yesterday. And um, the person who organises all of the kids' church stuff had said, oh, look, what we're going to do this term is we're going to do the whole of the Bible story. How do we tell the whole of the Bible story? And you, you've got sort of 10 weeks to do it. Uh, you're working with year three and year four. Cool. Awesome. I mean, awesome. Great. Excellent. How am I going to tell the whole of the Bible story to a group of year three and year four kids. So I decided, well, I guess I should have a memory verse because, you know, it's good to memorise God's words, isn't it? And so I thought, well, this is a good one. All of God, no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Jesus Christ. And so that's what I did yesterday. We, We I tried to creatively teach them this memory verse and then, of course, I made them recite it individually, word perfect, or they weren't allowed to leave the room. (laughs) I've never done a primary education degree. I don't really know good teaching practice. Okay. What an astounding verse. All of those promises we've seen tonight, every single one of them is yes in Jesus. Really? New heavens and new earth, that's yes in Jesus? 
judgment of all kings of the world and the spiritual powers, yes, in Jesus, the lion eating straw, the wolf and the lamb, mates together in the feeding trough, all yes in Jesus, that's what the New Testament says. And so that's what we need to explore tomorrow night. So let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you have not left us as your creatures and your world in the darkness and despair of our rejection of you. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for your gracious and beautiful plan of salvation effected in Christ Jesus out of your great love for us. We thank you that you chose a people for your own, that you made promises to Abraham, that you were faithful to your people despite their faithlessness, that you made extraordinary promises to come in rescue and judgment and fulfil your purposes. And we pray, Father, that as we turn our minds to understand your word and consider how you are at work in salvation history, that we might understand your ways better, that we would know Jesus better, that we would love him more, seek wisdom from his lips, and that we might live to his praise and your glory. And we pray it in his name. Amen.